Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Good evening, Dr. Johnson. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Our topic for today is spine subspecialization in neurosurgery, its considerations in clinical practice and lifestyle, as well as the pathway uh, to get there um, for fellowships uh, and beyond. To help us do that, we have Dr. John Shin. He's an attending neurosurgeon at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, an associate professor of Harvard Medical School. He's the director of spine oncology and spinal deformity surgery, as well as the director of spine research. He completed his neurosurgery residency training at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and complex spine fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Shin, thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor and uh, it's great to be here. Great. So just to start, why neurosurgery? We always love to hear the 30,000 foot view uh, and, and tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Well, first of all, it really started when I was an undergrad. I went to Brown University and I remember being a uh, freshman and taking an introduction to neurosciences class and thought it was really fascinating, very complicated. And I think as any medical student can identify with, you know, memorizing all these tracks, I think it was very frustrating, but also it was, uh, it was really cool and really exciting. Um, you know, I, so I had that interest just from a basic science standpoint from early on. And I think when I went to medical school, I, I definitely had an inclination towards surgery. And after rotating through general surgery, you know, the different specialties, you know, I didn't really feel a strong draw to the other subspecialties. And actually, uh, I, I actually was exposed to neurosurgery through a random encounter that my mother had. She was at the dry cleaners one day. I grew up in Chicago. She was at the dry cleaners and she saw someone wearing scrubs and uh, she's just happened to strike, strike up a conversation with that person. Turned out he was a neurosurgeon, got his business card. And basically during one of my uh, winter breaks, went to go see what he was doing in the operating room. And uh, I was pretty blown away by it. I still remember to this day, it was a uh, it was an operation done for epilepsy and I had never been in an operating room and never had seen uh, the skull open before. And I thought that was really a, an amazing um, profession to be in. And I think that as I went through medical school and did rotations and away rotations as well, uh, I was a little awestruck, I think, in seeing the residents. Uh, I could not believe that there were people that were actually training to do this for a career. And I think for me, the real draw was with combining the neuroscience and surgery was, you know, trying to reverse or fix problems that really were challenging, but also, you know, these type of problems affect our function, many things that we take for granted and don't think about until they're really taken away. And I think for me, that um, was really what inspired me and continues to I think, push and challenge me uh, in my career in terms of trying to reverse or improve deficits that are there affecting the neurological system. 
Wow, that's great. Uh, those chance encounters can definitely change the directory, trajectories of our lives. Um, and I'm sure we will come back to what is driving you and motivating you now and moving forward. But Dr. Johnson, I was, I was thinking it would be valuable um, as we talk about the spine pathway um, to have some context and a general outline for what it takes to become med student to resident to fellow, what the different fellowships and subspecializations could be, um, and maybe uh, just give a general uh, broad outline for that. Yeah, sure. I'd love to say that, uh, Dr. Shin, you're going to have to send your mom an extra special Christmas gift every year uh, after that chance encounter helped you find your your career path. That's impressive. You know, it's crazy. It's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I think any kid can sometimes uh, test you, you know, when your parents are talking about you or doing whatever, sometimes you just want to hide a little bit. But, uh, you know, it uh, definitely was a, a great chance encounter. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So yeah, for those of out there who may not be familiar, I'll try and over, do an overview of how things work. So of course, you know, you go through undergrad, you get into medical school, then you have to match in neurosurgery. Um, and once you're in neurosurgery, you have seven year program to train. And uh, when you're done, you can specialize in a variety of different things, uh, subspecialize. Some of them you do not need extra years of training to do, um, and some you do. Uh, and then there's some that are kind of the choice of the person that's career if they want to do extra time training in that. And so I think, for instance, um, there's epilepsy, which you can certainly be trained well enough in regular residency to do some of that. But then there's like very advanced epilepsy and functional procedures, which most people choose to do functional epilepsy fellowships. Um, vascular uh, is a similar thing. Uh, if you have a lot of open vascular volume in your center, you may feel very comfortable doing vascular open surgeries without a fellowship, but if you want to do endovascular, you certainly do have to do a fellowship. And so this, this can kind of go on and on. There's trauma, um, there's many subspecialties. So, and, and for spine, it's, it's one of them. So a large percentage of neurosurgery procedures in general are actually spine procedures. Um, and I'll let Dr. Shin kind of go over the reasons why someone might want to do a spine fellowship, because there certainly is a good deal of spine training in general neurosurgery residency. Um, but it's one of those ones where if you want to focus on, on the most complex or the most challenging or, or just want extra exposure to techniques you don't see in your own training, then, then a spine fellowship is one of those options you can choose to do. Um, people that are trained in spine can do a variety of different careers, including going into general practice and still seeing brain pathologies as well as spine pathologies, or they can really subspecialize and just do spine. Um, and even sometimes subspecialize into complex spine or spine oncology and those types of things. So there's a variety of different things you can do with your career. Um, and and if, I think if you want to do one of these really highly subspecialized um, careers, um, then you probably do want to do a fellowship, but that's, that's the broad overview of how, how these things work. Yeah. Dr. Shen, <clears throat> What does it mean to do a spine fellowship and how might different programs, how might the training be different? So I know you did a complex spine fellowship. How is that different from maybe a different fellowship or, or that sort of thing? Sure. So, um, yeah, so to backtrack a little bit. So I, when I did my residency at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and I initially went into neurosurgery with an interest in aneurysm surgery. So I went into it with a real interest in cerebral vascular and, um, you know, and I had great mentorship. Our chair was Fadi Charbel and uh, Sepi Henjani was our program director and really went through the first four or five years of residency, 
uh, spending a lot of time doing open uh, cranial surgery, but specifically with aneurysm and skull-based surgery. And that really was my first love in neurosurgery. Um, and uh, what really drove me to learn microsurgical techniques and, um, and really uh, I spent a great deal of time thinking that I was gonna go into that. And this was a time when you know endovascular was also starting to become very popular and you started to see more neurosurgery residents and also attendings uh, carve out time to train in endovascular. At the same time, I, I had a great uh, attending at the time, Michael Lamole, who had done his neurosurgery training at uh, the Barrow Neurological Institute. And as a senior resident, I spent a year with him and, you know, Michael was really incredible and influential on my career because this is someone who he's primarily a skull-based surgeon, but he spent a year with uh, Volker Sontag as an infolded fellow. And as a resident, you know, operating with and attending, it was pretty awesome to see that this person could do almost anything that came through the door. I, I really admired that. So whether it was doing a complex aneurysm to a transphenoidal case to doing, you know, a complex posterior reduction for a thoracic burst fracture. Um, you know, Michael Lamole, he, he really could do it all. And I was a little star starstruck and really wanted to have a, a skill set like that, you know? And so I think as an impressionable student, as a resident, you know, I saw someone who just had exceptional training and um, was able to do really a lot of things, and especially with instrumentation and whether it's freehanding, pedicle screws, you know, there are a lot of things that I was exposed to later on in my residency, uh, even though I had really almost committed academically, psychologically, emotionally to a cerebrovascular career, it was really a game changer. And I remember one case, we had a case of a uh, cervical thoracic sarcoma involving the spine and uh, this had caused cord compression, a lot of pain, uh, partial paralysis. It was involving the vertebral artery on one side, and we ended up doing a radical resection or reconstruction for this. And granted, he, he was not the dedicated spine faculty or the director of spine in our program, but you know we did the case together and it was awesome. And I knew that from that point on, uh, even though it was later on in my residency, uh, I, I wanted to switch gears and learn something more because for me, it was really about it. It had all those elements, I think, in neurosurgery that I loved with dealing with the blood vessels, the vertebral artery, but also the different aspects of spine with reconstruction, thinking about stabilization, thinking about the biomechanics, how you're going to get to heal, but also about decompression and stable, you know, decompression and making sure you're all the way around the spinal cord, the nerve roots. So to me, it had sort of that combination of skull-based surgery and cranial surgery, but th with throwing in all this instrumentation and reconstruction considerations. And I remember reading a paper uh, by Chris Ames at one point too, I think it was in Journal Club. And I remember he talked about how complex spine surgery, especially oncologic surgery, was almost like skull-based surgery because you had to take away all these different bony elements you know, to think about how you're going to get to different targeted areas without necessarily moving things around, like moving the spinal cord around or moving nerve roots around, you know, it's a sort of like taking away different structures, but then figuring out how to put that all together again, you know? So 
so that I thought that was really a pivotal moment for me in my residency. You know, having that, I remember that one case. Uh, I remember I presented it at our one of our neurosurgery grand rounds, and I think it really set me on a path of really trying to not only learn the skills needed to do that, but also to learn more about just everything spine in terms of reconstruction, biomechanics, you know, all these things that as a resident, especially, I didn't really get that. Uh, you know, I think it's hard as a resident to really um, dive deep into those topics unless you really have an interest early on. And so for me, I just knew that uh, I needed sort of additional time to sort of sweat it out. You know, I needed to find a place where I could go and, you know, really um, be immersed in it and, uh, and really uh, study it, practice it, you know, be surrounded by people that were really experts in that. So for me, it was very clear that I, I sort of, I wanted to spend extra time after training to, to train in that. And I was willing to uh, make that commitment, you know? And so then it was just about trying to find the right place, the right people. But, but that's what really led me towards that. I think there are so many different kinds of spine fellowships because, you know, the subspecialty of spine is so varied and diverse, um, whether it's MIS and now we have robotics and, you know, there's deformity and, you know, there are people that specialize in oncology. So there's a wide spectrum, but I think that's what is so great about the subspecialty of spine. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's basically how I got to that, to that point. So what does your career look like now at MassGen? Is it, so you, you do spinal deformity surgery, oncology, um, how do all those pieces fit together? And do you get all of that in a spine fellowship or is there, are there certain elements of that that uh, people should be uh, looking for when they're, you know, thinking that they want to do spine surgery uh, specifically? Right. So I think, you know, the key, at least when I started out and when I was looking at fellowships, I think my main goal was really to get the best possible training and exposure overall. I wasn't necessarily interested in one particular domain, but I did want to be exposed to, you know, how to do percutaneous techniques or MIS techniques, but also know how to do complex osteotomies and use the latest technology. And so, you know, I loved my time in Cleveland uh, as a fellow there, the Cleveland Clinic with great mentorship. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I particularly loved about my fellowship, and there are a lot of fellowships like this as well, um, but it was a combined neurosurgery and orthopedic uh, fellowship with faculty and uh, orthopedic, you know, fellows as well. Um, and so you really were immersed in all things spine. Uh, from different points of view. And I think I thought that was really uh, incredibly helpful. You know, one thing that I tell our own residents uh, and residents that I've mentored as well, uh, now that I've been doing this for a couple of years is not to necessarily get frustrated during their training, residency training, that they're not exposed to certain things. Because uh, even as fellows, you may not necessarily be exposed to everything that you think you'd want to do as an attending or as a spine surgeon. You know, I think sometimes when you see these conferences and you see, you know, the giants sort of present their great cases and results and, you know, after a while when you watch enough of these or go to enough of these conferences, it's, it's almost like, well, everyone does it that way and everyone's that good, you know, but, but you know, surgery is a journey. And I think that um, by all means, there are a lot of things I do now that I certainly 
was exposed to certain aspects of them technically uh, as a fellow, but it's not like I did everything that I do now as a fellow. So I think sometimes it's just, you know, good to know for, you know, residents and trainees to know that you don't have to really learn everything because it's just not possible, you know, but I think getting exposed to different techniques, understanding that and uh, being able to apply that, uh, I think is very helpful and useful. Uh, with regards to my my practice now at MGH, so yes, my, my primary clinical interests and also research interests are in oncology and deformity surgery, especially with oncology. I have a great interest in primary tumors like chordomas, uh, chondrosarcomas, sarcomas involving the bone and the spinal column. For those type of uh, patients, it's all about the multidisciplinary, multimodality team. So I work with a great team of you know, orthopedic oncologists, radiation oncologists, plastic surgeons, you know, a real uh, comprehensive team. And, you know, for those type of patients, we do pretty extensive, when indicated, uh, radical on block resections and reconstructions. But also the majority of spine oncologic care is for metastatic disease. And so uh, that is a pretty extensive component of what I do. Uh, you know, a lot those patients have a lot of different care needs. And so there is a lot of multidisciplinary care that is coordinated for that. But on the other hand, I also do a lot of um, adult deformity, uh, especially cervical deformity, uh, lumbar deformity, uh, you know, degenerative uh, spine conditions. Those are things that are pretty common and things that we all face uh, in, in practice uh, for the most part, whether you're in general practice or not. So uh, that, that is a pretty robust component of uh, dealing with degenerative and deformity type uh, patient populations. You know, I think in an academic setting, I, I do think it is helpful to, to focus on areas just because it helps really craft and um, structure a research program, whether you have clinical research interests or basic science interests. But I think that, you know, having some area of uh, focus uh, certainly does help that. And, you know, for a lot of people, I know that their research interest is on one specific domain of spine surgery, though they may in practice, you know, handle a lot of different clinical areas of surgery. So, uh, but I think, you know, but that takes time. I, I don't think it's, it's really uncommon for people to come out and have everything strained away. I think as you build your clinical practice, the first several years, maybe first five years, uh, you know, I think those questions that you want to ask and the things you want to investigate, I, I think they do, um, I think it does take some time to develop that. Uh, Dr. Shane, I had a quick question for you. So from the perspective of someone who's in their early training years, trying to sort out what they may want to do as far as fellowship goes, given that a large percentage of neurosurgery is spine, even for those who don't do fellowships, uh, what in your mind are some of the reasons someone would feel compelled to do a spine fellowship? Uh, there's probably more than one. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Like who's the person that would say, I want to spend an extra year training to do spine rather than just going through their typical residency and then graduating and doing as much kind of much fun as they wanted to. No, that's a great question. And I agree. I think uh, for most neurosurgeons coming out of residency programs now, I mean, we're exposed to that through all, six, seven years. And I know that uh, many programs, you know, many residents are also doing extra time, whether it's extra elective time or um, infolded fellowships, spending time with a mentor. I think those are all valuable experiences. And I think because 
each residency program is so different in terms of their curriculum, you know, the residency case numbers, as well as the type of faculty, maybe the breadth of, you know, um, you know, spine that's being done. I think it really does vary. I think there are a couple of reasons why, you know, residents may want to pursue spine fellowships. One may be if someone has an inclination to go, to go into academic uh, neurosurgery, it's by no means mandatory or expected, but it certainly does help because it does give you a little bit of that incubation period to um, not only identify maybe a mentor in the field uh, with whom you can write, uh, whether it's chapters, studies, reviews, you know, original research, but someone you can shadow, you know, sort of emulate in a number of different ways, uh, but also spend time to really read and learn the craft. Uh, I think that can definitely help, you know, sort of strategize and plot out how you want to start your academic career. Um, and I think especially in academic neurosurgery, as you know, I think networking and making those connections is, is always invaluable. And so sometimes a fellowship can be a great stepping stool for that. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are, you know, people that go into fellowships that also go into private practice. Uh, one of the chief residents that uh, is a great friend that I worked with uh, in the Cleveland Clinic, he's in private practice and he did the spine fellowship and uh, he does cranial surgery as well, a wide variety of surgeries. And so I think, you know, for everyone, it's, they, they have different reasons. And I think for some, it's maybe just to get a little more exposure, a little more practice with, you know, complex techniques um, just knowing that they'll be ready to have enough of the basic skill sets to, to build upon and going into practice. So uh, I think everyone has their reasons. And I think that spine is so diverse and nuanced now that I know that, you know, some of our residents, like in the last year, I've had a resident that really wanted to learn MIS and minimally invasive techniques. And right. so, um, you know, we're able to sort of help mentor and uh, encourage that and try to help them out uh, on that path. So, you know, I, I think everyone kind of has their own motivations, but, you know, I think a, a, a key sort of unifying theme in all this is really, it's all about mentorship and, you know, finding the right people that are going to help you along that process. Um, and I think that's uh, something that I think is really important as people go through their residencies is really trying to find and identify you know, someone who, um, you know, they can, um, that, that can help them with that process. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Uh, I was just curious to hear your, your opinion on it because uh, I did my training somewhere that had very high volume spine fellowship. Um, and so I got to see all the different fellows that came through and I got about the same sense that you say, which is everyone does it for different reasons. Some places may train at a program that doesn't have a lot of complex spine and they want to just do more and get right. more efficient. Right. Um, other people came specifically to like hone complex deformity. And as you say, kind of develop the mentors and even to some degree kind of get ingrained in the spine academic world right. through both writing and, you know, networking and having mentors that can help find jobs, right. you know, help promote you and say you're good and help find these right. academic jobs. Um, and so I, I think, I think your summary is actually kind of aligns with what, what's in my mind, having observed, you know, many fellows kind of come through and have different rationales, at least in my observation for, for doing it. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I, when I first got to Cleveland, I was so hungry. I, I don't know, like I'm a big Star Wars fan. So for me, it was like going to go train with Yoda, you know, uh, right, not, right. I'm not saying that Ed Benzel's old. I'm just saying that uh, for me, it was like, it was my time to go like, 
you know, bury myself somewhere and just like, you know, hopefully come out stronger, you know? And so, and I really went into it um, with the attitude that I, I knew nothing about spine surgery, you know? So I, I really took every opportunity to read and to write about everything from like lumbar stenosis to spondylolisthesis, uh, and then, you know, to all the other things, you know, and I, I remember just, you know, Dr. Benzel, he, he had one of his assistants was like a production manager and uh, she was awesome. And she would always send out these emails saying, Hey, you know, Dr. Benzel has like these hundred things to write who wants to do it. And it was basically, you know, first come first serve. And, you know, we would just divvy it up and, um, it was a great opportunity because, you know, I think, as you know, by writing, you really learn the literature and you really learn who's, who's writing, who the, who the experts are. And uh, so it really helped me get acquainted with like who's who in spine surgery, yeah. um, you know, the history of it and whatnot from all these different topics. I mean, I volunteered myself just to write all these different things so I could get ingrained. And then I, I remember honestly going to my first uh, spine section meeting. And I, I remember it was literally, it was kind of like being starstruck and meeting all these people that I remember reading about and, you know, using the references and end notes and doing all the stuff, right. Writing. And then you meet them and it's, it was pretty, it's pretty cool. So I remember like uh, being a fellow, um, you know, I think we're all impressionable, you know, no matter what stage you're at. And I think for me, it was just about being in the right environment and, uh, and really trying to learn as much as I could. That's great. Dr. Shin, how might your fellowship training differ from someone else's? You said that you, uh, it was a combined orthopedic neurosurgery program. Um, how, how might that differ from other institutions and their programs, um, which might be, are they all that way? Are they all combined? Do they all, are there certain competencies that each fellowship has to meet? Um, how, how does that how does that look? No, I think, you know, that's a great question. I think every fellowship is different and by no means, you know, does everyone need to have, you know, exposure to neurosurgery and orthopedics. But I think that, you know, what spine looks like today is very different from what it was maybe 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. So I think that the traditional, what we thought of as a traditional neurosurgery spine fellowship 10 years ago is actually very different you know, from what it is today because now what you're seeing, actually you're seeing neurosurgery trainees, neurosurgery grads do um, postgraduate orthopedic fellowships. Um, there are people that I know that have you know, worked with orthopedic surgeons in, in postgraduate training and they're also vice versa. They're also orthopedic residents uh, who have graduated that do postgraduate neurosurgery fellowships as well. And I think that uh, you're seeing that pattern arise. And I think that just because of the, you know, um, you know, when you look at any issue of neurosurgery or, you know, the Journal of Neurosurgery Spine, the Spine Journal, you know, you'll see topics, papers that, you know, you know each paper may have a mix of neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, and not only that, but um, you'll see that the topics that are written on are shared by both specialties. So it's not like neurosurgery owns cervical spine, you know, or that, you know, orthopedics owns like L4-5 lumbar degeneration, you know, 
Uh, everyone sort of has a stake in the game. And I think that over time, what you're seeing is that, you know, neurosurgery trainees, regardless of the type of fellowship, you know, they're doing, they're getting exposed to all these different type of um, techniques and uh, technologies that are there. So I, I think broad exposure is excellent. And, you know, I think just because the type of fellowships that are out there right now, and just the way that everyone's being trained, I, I think you're seeing a good mix across specialties overall. Yeah, I think that that multidisciplinary idea is really invading a lot of our just normal lives. Um, so I'll pose a, a scenario for you. So as a junior resident, PGY two or three, whether they're in orthopedics or in neurosurgery, and they're pretty sure they want to do a spine fellowship. They are really interested in a particular part of spine surgery, or they have a particular research interest, like we've talked about. How do they go about finding more information about the programs that they would potentially want to train at? And when should they begin that process for actually reaching out to uh, fellowship directors and, and programs uh, for fellowship training? Yeah, no, I think, first of all, I think, you know, getting exposed to spine surgery, I think is really important early on. And sometimes it's not possible given the structure of any given residency. Uh, and I know that, you know, everyone wants to get into the OR when they're a PGY1. And um, obviously, that's why we go into the field. Uh, but sometimes just the dynamic and the structure of each residency program, sometimes that's hard to do. That's just a, a challenge I think everyone has to navigate. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, for some people, they may not necessarily see, see it until later on. Um, um, regardless, I think one of the key things is really as a resident is to, to seek out those opportunities. And that's the same thing I try to encourage our residents. So even though if you're not necessarily assigned to a case, uh, you can still read up about it. You can still come into the room, see what's going on, double scrub, you know, participating in spine conferences. I think that's really important. Getting involved, volunteering to write and get involved in studies, whether they're book chapters or original spine related projects. I think those are all great ways to get into the field and get exposed. With regards to seeking out the fellowships, I think that these fellowships, they are quite competitive depending on where you wanna be, especially if I've identified specific people you want to work with or centers. Um, and just like any aspect of life, there's competition. And so sometimes it does involve just, you know, um, reaching out early, oftentimes maybe two or three years in advance. Um, I would say that between two to three years is, is a pretty good time period to actively start uh, looking or reaching out to people. And that actually may be closer to three years for some very competitive programs. Um, but, you know, there isn't, there, there is not, to my knowledge, a specific match. I know that for, you know, residents that I've mentored, it really just came down to a phone call and at least pre-COVID getting together with prospective colleagues, making that introduction at a meeting, getting together for a meal, you know, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to sort of plant that seed. Uh, and I think that, um, you, you know, as a resident, you can certainly do that on your own, but I think that having someone who can help, uh, I think is great. 
um, you know, whether it's a, a mentor, faculty mentor, um, you know, or even a senior resident that maybe knows that attending. But I think definitely starting several years beforehand uh, is very helpful. And what are the things that you think make you competitive? So obviously starting early, identifying programs that you might want to train at, mentors and faculty that you'd want to train under, have a good understanding of the potential uh, focus that you would want to uh, be a part of at a particular program. What are the things that, whether it's research, I mean, is, is research um, an absolute necessity in, in spinal uh, surgery, uh, spinal focused research, or um, are there certain other things that you would say are, are important for people who are interested in subspecializing? Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that research is, I mean, research is definitely important. And I think being involved in, I think what, how research helps is that it shows that the candidate or the resident definitely has some questions and has, you know, um, curiosity about the field. And I think that's very important. And I think that for a lot of us who are in practice, who, you know, go to meetings, I think it's really great and also invaluable to see people up at the podium presenting their work, especially as residents. And I know that, um, you know, I'm involved in the uh, ANSCNS spine section, which is a great section. And it really emphasizes, um, you know, resident education as well as opportunities for residents to present um, their work. And uh, most of the presentations are pretty short. I think most of them are two minutes long at, in the main, the main sessions, but um, it's an opportunity for people to showcase what they've been doing and what they're writing. So I think research is, is definitely important. It's a way to start that conversation, you know, potentially with a uh, prospective mentor or um, fellowship, uh, fellowship. But uh, I think it's one component. And I think that, uh, but just having, um, getting in there, working with the uh, spine faculty at your institution, uh, developing that interest and, you know, um, using that relationship to really establish a, a, a line of communication, I think, with other potential um, fellowship um, faculty, I think is very important. I have a, I have a follow-up question for that. Uh, do you have a fellowship at, at your institution right now that you train fellows? Yeah, we currently do not, but uh, it is definitely a consideration that we've been talking about and discussing. And I think that, um, you know, it's not something that at the MGH we haven't had historically, um, right. even across multiple uh, subspecialties. So such as neuro-oncology, functional pediatrics, um, you know, at the MGH, the, um, you know, the, the, the philosophy and the, the focus has always been on resident education, but, you know, it is something that we've been thinking about and there's definitely a lot of interest. I get a lot of inquiries from people uh, residents from around the states and uh, around the world about spending time uh, in Boston. So um, it is something that um, I would love to to do programmatically, and I think is uh, definitely in the works. Yeah, where I was getting at, I was just curious if you were a fellowship director, let's say, at a competitive fellowship. It's a bit of a follow up question from what from what Michael asked, which was, you know, many many equally qualified people how would you decide who gets a fellowship and who doesn't, uh, you know, what factors would you find to be the most important, uh, both on paper and 
you know, the intangibles as far as you can tell them with their mentors and things like that, just so people can get a sense of what folks may be looking for in a fellow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I, I think at least from where I stand, I think that if, if we were to start a fellowship, you know, I think that we are definitely interested in um, developing and mentoring future leaders in academic spine surgery. So I think that, not to say that you couldn't come and uh, be a really successful person in private practice, but uh, I think that uh, amongst myself and colleagues, you know, probably want to see, you know, what is really lighting the fire uh, in an applicant, what they want to do, you know, what their five-year, you know, 10-year goal and where they see themselves uh, on the world stage. Uh, that's just my own bias, you know, right, uh, right. And just to see kind of what they want to do to move things forward. And, um, and that comes across in a lot of different ways. You know, that comes across in just, you know, um, how people communicate, you know, how involved they've been throughout their residency in various activities, whether it's writing or, um, you know, um, you know, spending time with faculty and also community engagement. I think those are all very important. So, you know, I think it's really trying to identify, you know, what people's overall goals are, what they want to set out to do, and if that's consistent with sort of, um, you know, the characteristics that we're looking for. Yeah, I think in Cerebovascular, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a culture of um, getting a sense of how technically gifted someone is for their, for their stage and that, that type of, vibe, I guess, for lack of a better term. Is that something that you, you talk about often when it comes to training people in spine? Uh, you know, they're a PGY-3, but they operate at a PGY-6 level or something like that. Is that is that the same culture there? Or you kind of assume everyone can pick it up to some degree? It's more about the, you know, learning and, and, and absorbing, you know, what you're taught. No, I think that technical aspect is very important. Um, you know, just from, uh, people that I've mentored and try to get into very competitive fellowships with other colleagues. That's almost oftentimes the first thing they ask is, you know, what, what are their right. hands like, you know, right, and, right. <laughs> uh, what are their hands like and can they operate? And uh, I'll tell you uh, uh, this past year, I had two graduating chief residents, really exceptional residents. One is at the BNI and one is now at MD Anderson, one focusing on uh, MIS with Juan Uribe, the other one with uh, Larry Rines. And I mean, they're in training now, so I, I may be embarrassing them if, if they listen to this. But uh, I remember telling them while they were chiefs and rotating with me for however month at a time, you know, I, I would I would sort of um, push them in the OR saying, man, there, there's a lot at stake here, you know, so you, you got to get up to speed because, right. uh, you know, put my name on the line for you guys, you know. No, but uh, it's important, you know, so, but that's what makes it fun too, you know, is that I can tell you that, uh, you know, I think whether you're going into spine or not, I think that's, you know, for those of us who are in this position where we are training residents, I think it's an awesome privilege. And I think, especially when, you know, there are people that we've personally mentored that are going into spine, it, it is, it is a challenge, but it's also a lot of fun to try to get them, you know, by our own metric, which is completely artificial, uh, you know, to be really at the top of the top, uh, you know, to be ready for that, you know, but uh, so yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it's really hard to gauge. I don't have the, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, it's not like we have them try to put together or figure out a Rubik's cube or, you know, put something together technically in the office, but 
you know, we have to go by word of mouth, you know, and uh, I think, you know, when we talk to colleagues, we trust and, you know, I think that goes a long way. And so I think, uh, and ultimately too, it's all about interpersonal relationships and communication as well, right? So I, I think that, um, you know, I think that goes a long way. What's in your mind, you know, what percentage of sort of success in the fellowship game, so to speak, is related to, uh, you know, person-to-person -person communication between mentors uh, more so than, than just your application, I, I guess was the kind of final follow-up question. And, and I, I suspect it's, you know, pretty, pretty high on the list. Um, you know, one person vouches for another. I have this phenomenon in my mind that in nurse surgery, as opposed to like basketball, you know, we can't like watch people. You know, so you really have to rely on people that have watched the person to know what they're like, you know? Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. I mean, I love the sports analogies, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of like the same way I train people. I'm like, you got to go faster, you know, like faster, more accurate, you know, like close one eye, you know, whatever it takes, you know, it's just like, you know, you got to, it's not good enough. Right. Um, so I, I love that aspect about training, but, but you're right. I think that um, those are, the intangibles, right? It's not like we're timing people, you know, sprint across the field or not measuring, you know, their vertical, things like that. And so I think that, um, yes, there are things uh, in terms of performance that because we don't have a systematic way of really assessing that, that translates in any universal document, you know, or any, or in any way that's truly a metric, uh, I think, yeah, we do have to rely on sort of what one person's opinion and take is. Um, and it, it may be more than one person, you know, so it may not just be my opinion, but it may be the opinion of, you know, several of my colleagues as well, you know. Um, so I think that um, those are all really important. I mean, I can't even imagine how you would select someone to do a cerebrovascular fellowship these days when it's just like, you know, how good is this person splitting the fissure and not, you know, cutting the optic nerve every time, you know, I mean, how do you measure that? Right. And uh, if I were interested in working with you, it's just like, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's, I mean, I think, I, I think that's what's tough in neurosurgery, you know, especially given the, the wide range and skill sets. Right. I think that, you know, like doing an OZ and, you know, doing that whole approach to get down to a basilar aneurysm is very different from, you know, doing an endovascular intervention, right? From oh puncture through whatever you're doing, right? Uh, and I don't know anything about endovascular techniques, so I'm just making that up. But, you know, but I would imagine it's such a wide skill set that, you know, it's like, how, how do you translate that into a metric where you can really make an objective, you know, call? Because it's not like we're interviewing for a job and like, you're showing someone what your returns were for like the last quarter, you know, exactly. what was, right. It's like, I can't show, you know, I, I think because we don't have that type of reproducible data uh, in, in this type of field, I think that is so nuanced. And even within each subspecialty, there's such wide range and skills. I think we have to rely to a certain extent on what you said was just uh, sort of word of mouth and, uh, you know, people vouching for um, each other. We're going to have to institute operative highlight reels pretty soon, you know, music in the background and everything. I think, well, in this day and age with Instagram and Twitter, right. LinkedIn, I mean, you're seeing a lot of that, you know, so, but it's, 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 it's impressive though, because sometimes, you know, you can look at it one way and say, oh, like 
you know, this person or this program, they're just showing off what they're doing. But you know what, without that, you wouldn't actually know what they're doing, right? right? So I can't tell you a lot of times I'm scrolling through social media, I'm seeing whatever, someone take out a brain tumor or do this or that. And I'm just, most of the time, I'm just in awe. I'm like, wow, that's actually right. pretty cool. Right. Like, that person does that, you know? Right. But, but we're just biased by what we see. So, I mean, I think like, you know, there are a lot of people that I don't, I don't personally know, but I just, I see what they're doing on any given social media stream. And it's really interesting, you know, because you just see different things now. And I think that there's so many ways to capture what you're exposed to and also what your expertise is. And my only, my only uh, warning about that is that in general, people only put up there what they want other people to see. Know. Right? So it's hard to really have like a, like an, a numerator and denominator, good versus bad. You, know. you only put up the, the good, right? So, you know. but, but you I know. agree. It is interesting if you see what people do and, and some of the outcomes they can have, but in the back of my mind, I always, uh, you know, you don't, you, obviously for, for good reason, you yeah, don't see all, a, all the disasters that, that may yeah. happen or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's always about how you frame it. Right. So I think that it's just, you know, I, I think it's, I think using those uh, platforms, I think can be powerful. You can you do a lot of great things with it, but it's all about how that message is crafted. And like you said, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that these are people's lives and, you know, you don't want to absolutely you know, mischaracterize or, you know, um, show it in a way that's disrespectful or not really truly representative. So I agree. I agree. Yeah, not seeing a lot of transected optic nerves on Instagram recently. Um, Dr. Shin, just, just to kind of wrap this up, where do you see spine surgery over the next five, 10 years? What are the emerging research topics that are interesting to you as well as to the field in general? Um, and where would you like to see spine training? Uh, where would you like to see that head as well? Well, um, you know, I think that right now, at least for me, a lot of what I do in terms of research we have a pretty broad um, and extensive sort of research portfolio, but I think one of the drivers uh, for what I do in studying research clinically is about minimizing or avoiding complications. And I think that, you know, whether you're doing a single level ACDF or, you know, uh, T1 PSO, you know, complications can happen, you know, and I think that um, for me, um, I think just because of the scope of what I see and what I do within the oncology realm, but also in deformity, you know, the complications are not insignificant. And I think that in the cancer world, you know, complications, they affect survival, they affect, you know, resuming or starting cancer therapies. It affects, you know, whether it was worth it or not to the person, the patient, it affects their quality of life. So there are a lot of implications for that. And I think that, you know, translated across spine, I think, you know, assessing really, you know, the, the frailty of the person and the patient, I think is really uh, essential and uh, very important, but also relatively understudied in neurosurgery. Um, and so that's a large area of my focus that we're trying to, uh, we're studying it specifically in the cancer population with spinal tumors, but also starting to study that in the adult degenerative world as well. Thinking about things like sarcopenia, their nutrition, you know, their frailty and how that really predicts potential complications, even mortality. Um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of work with looking at lab values, radiographic parameters, 
they're really a, a, a long list of variables. And I think that's where, that's what I'm most interested in and is studying those variables and using uh, predictive analytics and big data to give us some better sense of really how to uh, minimize these type of complications for people. So, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of buzz about, you know, artificial intelligence and a lot of these sophisticated statistical methods to study, you know, health-related disorders. And I definitely think that there's, there, you can do that in spine. I think the problem is that in what we do, especially in neurosurgery, most of what we do is retrospective in nature, and there's not a lot of prospective data. Uh, fortunately, there are, are subspecialty, um, you know, research groups that are looking at these that have organized and um, developed uh, combined prospective multi-center registries. Um, and I'm involved in one uh, with the AO that we're dealing with uh, for, for tumors. And, um, and I think that, you know, with prospective studies, clinical studies that are organized well with extensive data collection, we can start really start to examine and answer a lot of these questions that I think we have historical retrospective data for. But as you know, it's just like knowing how one center treated, you know, 2000 aneurysms, you know, anterior circulation aneurysms is very different from how you may treat that and what that means for your patient, right? Um, and I, I would argue the same thing for like low grade glioma, you know, you know, across specialties. So I think that it's, it's difficult because, you know, patients always ask, you know, what's, what's my complication rate, right? And it's a question that I honestly, it's very difficult to answer. What's the rate of this? What's the rate of that? And, you know, sometimes I make a, a comment not to be funny about it or, you know, not to trivialize it. But I sometimes say like, you know, I'm not like, we're not talking about like selling used cars here. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what that percentage is because they're so specific to what you do and also my experience. And I don't know, like, I, I don't think most surgeons keep a running active tab on their percentage rates of all the different things that happen in their clinical practice, you know? So, so I think that the future of spine research, I think will be, you're going to see a lot more prospective multi-institutional projects and uh, data coordination, but it's expensive and it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort. And you may think that, you know, collecting patient data and patient reported outcomes and patients filling out surveys theoretically is simple, but when you actually try to do that in practice, it becomes quite difficult. And we take care of a lot of different patients and patients come from all over the place. And so I think continuity and, you know, I think organizing all that is a challenge, but I think that's where we're really going to make the, the highest impact is we can definitely use these these analytics that are used in other industries, right? Like finance and uh, uh, different industries. But I think that um, it's just the data set that we're working with that I think has uh, been a major limitation. But I think that, you know, spine surgery is really exciting because there's so many different technologies. And, you know, one of the sort of the um, areas of great interest as well, and it's not just a research interest, but also from a practical standpoint is this concept of enhanced recovery after surgery. You know, whether you're having you know, minimally invasive endoscopic surgery, or you're having a T10 to pelvis, um, you know, the really question comes down to you, how can you, you know, minimize the complications, enhance your recovery, and, and, you know, funnel, you know, sort of in parallel, we've got all these different, you know, technologies like, you know, augmented reality and robotics and navigation. And, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive 
the question is, you know, how do you integrate all of that into like one case, right? So I think that, you know, you may have one goal of surgery and that's just to decompress the L5 nerve, you know, that's all you need to do, but you can literally have, you can wear things, you could listen to things, you could turn the lights off, you can have all these you know, things in the room, you know, gadgets in the room. And I think it's the challenge is really trying to make sense of uh, how to use and integrate all those tools to really come up with the best outcome. So that's why I think it's great. There are so many different people that are really pushing the envelope, trying to advance that. Yeah, I'm building, building good studies that show their efficacy and safety big time um, uh, versus standard of care. So uh, Dr. Shin, I have one final question. It's probably the most important one, but uh, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? Oh my goodness. Um, my favorite is The Empire Strikes Back. Me too. Classic. Yeah. Classic. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but I think that, you know, after seeing the finale for uh, The Mandalorian, you know, that was pretty, that was pretty great. I'm a, I was a big fan of that, but um, no, but I would say Empire Strikes Back. I, I've heard mixed reviews about the Mandalorian, but I've heard that it's the end has been really good. So I'm going to probably take that to heart to make me try it for sure. So if I don't like it, I'm coming back to you, Dr. Shin. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of, a lot of great Star Wars analogies and training, you know, so it's, it's, it's good, but we like to, we like to have fun with it. So good to know the vocab. Yeah. Uh, well, our guest has been Dr. Shin. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah. I appreciate you coming. Oh, this is great, guys. Thank you so much. And I uh, hope it was helpful. And it was a really great pleasure to be here with you tonight. Thanks. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.